jazz strings, hip hop strings. Let's do it. Let's do some heavy metal strings. That's today's guest, innovative strings teacher, Beth Fortune, challenging us to think about the orchestra classroom a little differently. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about our guest. Beth Fortune has been a respected elementary and secondary music teacher in the Seattle area for a number of years and is also director of educational programming at the Wintergrass Music Festival. Beth has been striving to bridge the gap between classical and roots music in the educational setting. You can find Beth's full bio, our show notes, and resources at www.musicedinsights.com. Alan, what was the high point for you in this interview? Well, you'll hear how excited I get to learn about her method of positioning herself as a fellow learner right along with her students, how she does it, how it happens. It's cool. What did you dig, Steve? I liked when she was talking about how to explore non-classical music and that many string teachers think they have to hit every single style, Celtic, bluegrass, and so on. And Beth suggests just picking one, ideally where there's already some interest in the community, and getting good at that one. Yeah, I wish I had heard these ideas at the start of my teaching career. Her ideas are exciting, cool. Let's get to this conversation. Beth Fortune, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Let's start with an overview of the terminology. For many of us, the term associated with not classical music in the school orchestra setting has been alternative strings. I notice now in many places, including your bio, we're seeing terms like eclectic strings or roots music and other such terms. And because words are so important, will you please talk to us just a little bit about how this terminology has evolved over the years? This terminology, this world of alternative styles or eclectic strings came about as a group of performers and educators that got together at one of the IAJE conferences. This is the organization that ended up turning into the Jazz Educators Network. And they formed kind of a coalition of players. And this terminology eventually came out of that. And this was sometime in the 90s. And no one was really super comfortable with it. Even from the beginning, people were not comfortable with it. Right. The terminology alternative styles, it others music that some places is the main music. So no one has ever really felt great about the term alternative styles. And then it kind of morphed. Well, what should we call it then? Well, let's call it eclectic styles. And again, in the world of the American String Teachers Association, we're not all quite on board with that. And really, there is no terminology, but I tend to veer toward we still struggle with being pigeonholed. We still struggle with being othered. It's something we're thinking about. How do we crack this nut? We're talking about this right now as how you might refer to an ensemble and how I, as another music educator, might realize, oh, well, she's clearly not programming Haydn with that group. But what about in terms of the terminology you might be using to send a message to students that this might be different? Students, you hear the word orchestra or strings, and you might automatically assume this, but we have this terminology. Does the student experience come? into play when you're thinking about words and how you classify the ensembles? 
I think it should. And I also think it's not just about terminology. It's about what's appropriate in your school and in the community you're in. So for instance, I'm in Seattle and people like to say there's something in the water here when we talk about jazz education. Seattle has some of the world's best jazz bands in some of our high schools. So jazz here in Seattle and in like these high schools and middle schools that have these jazz band programs, jazz is like a super popular thing. And it's something that kids are motivated to want to be a part of. For instance, when I was at Washington Middle School, And when my band colleague and I decided we were going to form the Eclectic Styles string group in the description and in the wording, utilize jazz. And in our planning and in our programming, we had the students learning jazz and performing jazz and working with the jazz band. So it's like you need to look at your community and and be like, what drives this community? So if it's jazz, jazz strings. If it's hip hop, it's hip hop strings. Let's call it what it is. If it's heavy metal, let's do it. Let's do some heavy metal strings. This approach is important and also different because I think we might go to a conference and see someone present on, well, this is how you teach bluegrass in your orchestra program. And then we go back to our orchestra program and think, well, now I'm going to do this bluegrass. And your point is maybe start by what interest is already there? What are the students and the community perhaps already excited about? And let's figure out how to integrate string education into that. Is that kind of what I'm hearing you say? That's kind of what I'm saying. And um, I think sometimes we as string educators, especially, especially because we go to these conferences and we get thrown ideas from all different aspects, all different ways of seeing things and different styles and all this stuff. Sometimes I think that we don't specialize enough. Like we think that eclectic styles is truly being eclectic. And if You know, you've got to do some Celtic, you've got to do some bluegrass, you got to do some rock, you got to do some jazz, you got to do all these different things. But I'm saying you're going to not, it's like too shallow over there when you're trying to do it all. Dig into your community, find out what drives it, and then dig into that. So are there programs out there that pick a theme for a year? Like, hey, this year, we're going to do bluegrass this year, we're going to dig way into bluegrass. And then another year we're going roots. Is that a thing that teachers can do and that you've seen teachers do successfully? You know, Alan, I I really haven't seen much of it, but that is a fantastic idea. It's a fantastic idea. Um, And it can drive so many different things with what you're programming, you know? There are so many different things. There's crossover into classical. There's all kinds of things and you can like literally build an entire year's worth of programming and educational experiences around that. You were referencing jazz bands earlier. And one of the things we hear band directors talk about is, well, yeah, I would love to teach jazz band. I would do a better job, but I can't improvise myself. It's sometimes an excuse and sometimes it's just legitimate fear for why they don't want to put themselves in there. Now I'm hearing that among our orchestra teachers, our string teachers saying, well, yes, if I could play bluegrass music like so-and-so, I would also be teaching it to my students, but I'm not good at bluegrass or fill-in-the-blank music. What do you recommend to teachers who they're willing, they want to try something different in their classroom, but they're a little hesitant because the genre might be outside of their comfort zone? 
My biggest tip on that is that you need to position yourself right along with the students as a learner. And you can use whatever resources you have at your disposal, okay? Maybe that's, I've got an old beat up guitar in my closet and take it from me. I just started teaching high school three years ago and part of my gig is teaching the guitar class. And I had never played guitar before I started teaching high school and teaching guitar. Any type of resource that you have at your disposal, whether it's the old beat up guitar that you're going to teach yourself how to play so you can back the kids up, whether it's you're going to watch YouTube video tutorials together with your kids and you're going to be an actual learner with them. Or maybe you have some budget and you can hire some clinicians. I am pretty sure I know the answer to this question, but I really want to hear you say it out loud. Do the students respect you more or less when you display that you've still got a lot to learn and you learn along with them? They ultimately will respect you more. It's really scary though for teachers. It's scary for us to take that leap, um, especially those of us that find ourselves in a new position. For instance, I had kind of a rough transition when I moved from middle school to high school and, um, you know, really, really combated the feeling of inadequacy, et cetera. And I, I was guarding myself from looking like I didn't know what I was doing. Ultimately, I had to let my guard down and just be a learner with the kids or mess up in front of the kids or whatever. And literally, I feel it is the only way that we are going to do this. This is the only way. We have to position ourselves as learners. We got to get friendly with strummed instruments because I think strummed instruments are pretty necessary. Try to make friends with someone who can play some drums for you or learn how to play drums yourself. That's another thing that I wish that I had some training on as an orchestra teacher. No one ever sat me down on a drum throne to teach me how to do a drum pattern. So I'm curious when you are willing to engage in, in learning along with the students, have you had experiences where one student or a couple students quickly become apparent to you, oh, they're a lot better at this than I am. And you maybe rely on them to demonstrate or to help teach the class. Absolutely. And that's another thing we have to get used to as teachers is that I don't know how many times in my career, even when I was teaching middle school, there were kids that outshined me in certain ways. As teachers, we need to move more toward the role of being a facilitator, a maker of connections, a person that brings the student to the resources that they need and the opportunities they need. And a lot of times that is not a direct you teaching content. That is you being a facilitator. And if thus and so student has the chops, let's get that student up front. Let's teach that student how to teach. We know how to teach. We know how to slow it down into chunks. Let's get that student learning how to teach and standing next to you and helping deliver the needed information. On the flip side of that, one challenge we often hear about in secondary instrumental ensembles, especially compared to a choir where maybe someone can join later in life and start singing, but in an instrumental group, a student perhaps joining in eighth grade or 11th grade because they've just moved to the district or decided, I'd like to start the violin. How do you acclimate students who have little or no prior technical ability on an instrument and incorporate them into a class with students who've maybe been playing for years? 
This is an interesting question because I'm being faced with working in that situation right now, actually on the high school level. And I'm still new to this high school like scenario. I taught middle school for many, many years. And in order to address that situation in middle school, I ran a beginning orchestra for anyone in any grade. So anyone no matter who could walk into that class and choose the stringed instrument of their choice and study it for a year. And we would start from scratch, scratch by ear, and then put music reading into the mix a little later on. And that was my approach in middle school. So did you have administrative buy-in? Like when you did that beginner orchestra, like it was a class during the school day. Did you have to do any hard work to sell that to your administration or did they have enough trust in you to make that, allow that to happen? I think that what was happening at the time was we were running a middle school general music class and I was teaching it. And the general music class was not that popular. I would probably venture to say I wasn't great at teaching it either. And the principal was like, why don't we just get another strings class going? So we started with beginning orchestra and then three additional orchestras after that. It was not hard to sell it simply because that other class was not great. It was pretty abysmal. So <laughs> so I love that you are trying to solve this same issue now. Uh, what have you been doing to create a welcoming atmosphere and to try to help some of those students who maybe have never played a violin before but want to begin when they're in 10th grade? So one thing that I do notice about high schoolers who do join like a mixed orchestra is that high schoolers are more adept at doing a lot of independent learning and comprehension on their own. And for a lot of these kids who have come in as beginners, I have had quite a lot of success with intervals where the two of us check in one-on-one -on -one and I'm giving them some extra help or helping simplify a part or writing in fingerings even, or even just helping out. But high school students are older and really able to learn a lot by osmosis and on their own. However, I did also last year, I got a grant from an organization in Seattle and I got 500 bucks and I devoted that 500 bucks to getting a specialist to come in and work for like four or five consecutive sessions with these kids and give them some extended one-on-one -on -one for like a whole class period, five or six times. And that is also a good way to get kids set up and troubleshoot and target the note reading skills and stuff like that. But I do say look for those types of grants that you can find because getting community members in, your local private teachers, get those folks in and they are fabulous at helping, especially high school kids, like I said, who are more independent, helping those kids get a start. And then they're off and running, you know, and then they're able to play in the concerts. And they've made a lot of huge growth leaps. And then by the time a year is up, maybe they do one more year in that lowest orchestra, but you could see them moving up 
I love that idea of grants because I think sometimes for us music teachers, it's sort of an all or nothing proposition where it's, I need another music teacher or we need to hire a halftime music teacher or someone, but we can't do that. And so therefore we just throw up our hands and give up. Whereas there are a lot of corporations who would love to help out with something like this and maybe only can give $500. But as you just noted, $500 can go a long way and it would make an impact that a local business would be proud to be associated with without a lot of cost to them and also doesn't involve us begging our administrators to add another position. I have a technical follow-up question. So for the students who you said are working on their own, uh, checking in with you, are they still registered for the class? Do they show up for the class and then you're sending them maybe to a practice room or to your office? How is that looking? They're registered for the class. Sometimes they'll have like time when they need to go out and practice on their own to like catch up on something. But most of the time they're in the class. And if they're not 100% with it, they're still doing what they can do, entering where they can. Of course, when like a coach comes in, they would leave the class and go to like a practice room with the coach. You know, there is obviously an expectation, and I'm sure this is across the board for everyone. There's the expectation that you are doing practice at home. You are expected to be working at home, making growth and uploading your playing tests and doing all these same things, whether that might be something that's scaffolded for a beginner or adjusted for a beginner. As you have become recognized as an expert in helping us incorporate non-European music into our string programs, what are some things aside from what we've already discussed where learning to play the drums or learning to play the guitar, those challenges, what might be another challenge or two you have noticed as you've kind of helped other teachers get this going or maybe they contact you and say, look, I tried what you said, this ended up being harder than I thought. Anything like that that comes to mind is kind of a common challenge and maybe a suggestion for how to think about that before it comes up? My number one recommendation is to not give up if you get pushback from the kids. Because let's face it, kids are like us. We were raised as classical musicians. That's all we know how to teach. That's how we were taught to teach. And that's how a lot of the kids that come to orchestra class have been taught to play. And sometimes teachers will encounter pushback from kids and the kids will not feel comfortable because it's something new and therefore will act as though they don't like it. And I'm just saying, don't pull back. You can continue putting this in front of the kids. You can continue making efforts toward this type of work and, you know, require it. And eventually you're going to build a climate around it. And I would say, focus a lot of attention on that climate building. You need to build the climate around. It's cool for us to improvise. We are improvisers. We are jazz musicians. By the time I was ending my period of teaching at Washington Middle School, there was a whole slew of kids that were in that middle school and in like the surrounding high schools that literally identified themselves as jazz musicians. And that took a long time to build that type of climate where this is what we do. This is what we do. And that was part of the definition of who string players are in this building. And the expectation across the board, even in the classical orchestras that at times I might be asking you to improvise. At times, we're going to be playing 
not classical. And that was just the climate we built. And if you don't yet have that climate, I'm saying you're probably going to get some pushback from the kids. Don't let that deter you. Don't make it make you give up. Keep on going. Keep on pushing. Build the climate around it. Well, circling back to the very beginning where we were talking about the importance of words, I love how you say we are improvisers. We are jazz musicians as opposed to I am going to improvise or I am going to play jazz. It's we are helping identify ourselves as jazz musicians, as improvisers. I think that is so wonderful. And Beth Fortune, thank you for joining us today to share your insight on these important issues. Can we close with some uh, lightning round questions on a couple of lighter topics? Sure, let's go for it. All right. What is the best restaurant in Seattle? There's this pizza joint just behind Ballard High School called Delancey. Holy cow. (laughs) That's the best. It's the best. Favorite children's book? Phantom Tollbooth. What is a piece of music or a composer that you wish more people knew about and programmed with their groups? I would say anything by Ronnie James Dio. And the flip side of that, is there a classical piece or a composer that you would be just fine never programming for your group or playing again? Um, I think I might be needing a break on Vaughn Williams now. Let's take a break. And finally, if you could not be a musician or a music teacher, what do you think your career would have been? I don't know. Um, Probably a teacher. I think I'm a teacher. I think I'm an educator. Another lightning round question for you. Can you make a comment on the artistic or cultural value of Montavani or 10,000 Strings or any other elevator music? (laughs) We we as string players should be... um, for glad for paying gigs. And um, there were string players that were paid to make those recordings. And it's a lot of it is sometimes not even harder than any high school repertoire. Students should feel like they should get into that kind of stuff. Um, It has syncopation. It's cool, man. We need to be open to that kind of stuff. Well, Beth Fortune, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, it was so great to have you. This is so fascinating. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Yes, very nice to meet you both. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musiced.com insights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. And let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.